Why renter's insurance? Because fajitas. State Farm renter's insurance covers stuff landlords don't, like smoke-damaged furniture from fajita night gone wrong. Find an agent or get a quote at statefarm.com. Suspect Convictions with Scott Reeder is back for a second season. You may have heard him discussing the case with me on November 22nd with our bonus episode. If not, go back and listen to that. That'll give you a bigger overview of the podcast. But I just wanted to tell you guys, you need to start listening to this one. This is a story of Barton McNeil, a man who may be wrongfully convicted. The Innocence Project sure thinks so. Have you ever sat there listening to one of these podcasts with questions in your head and you want to ask the narrator, you want to ask the people involved, you want to investigate this case a little? Suspect Convictions is doing something new this season. They're letting you do that. Email in your questions for Barton McNeil to Suspect Convictions and they will ask him the questions and air the answers. You get to help investigate this case. That is Suspect Convictions with Scott Reeder. You can find it in your favorite podcast app. Darling, I want my gay rights now! Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me today, as always, is Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm doing well, and a happy new year to you. Happy new year to you, too. We have an exciting 2018 planned We have new stories, bigger cases, more personal stories from listeners and others who've written into the show, and also starting in February, more episodes with two episodes a week. So we're really excited about about that. Tonight, we're going to start 2018 with the story of the mysterious death of a gay and trans rights activist named Marsha P. Johnson in 1992. As I started researching this, I realized that I couldn't really tell Marcia's story without also talking about Sylvia Rivera. The two women are too linked to separate. Then I realized that I couldn't tell their stories in context without also discussing the uprising at the Stonewall Inn in 1969. So this episode is going to be Marcia, Sylvia, and Stonewall. A note about the language At the time of Stonewall and the early gay liberation movement, the community did not have the same language we have today to capture the nuance of people's gender identity or their sexual orientation. People who were assigned male at birth who dressed as women were generally called drag queens or transvestites, and that's what Marcia and Sylvia generally referred to themselves as. Marcia would also alternate between calling herself a man and a woman, Sylvia, when the term transgender became more widely used, just said that she was tired of labels. So after thinking about this for a while, we've decided to use the term transgender in this episode when we're referring to their gender identity, but we are using that term in the broadest sense. We also want to give a special thanks to Debbie Jackson. She's a trans rights activist and the owner of Gender Inc., She helped review our script for us. She was able to give us more information and greater context for this episode by providing some current information on transgender youth, homelessness, and things like that. Gender Inc. offers professional development, consulting services, and transgender inclusivity training for schools, medical offices, businesses, and community organizations. 
If you or your business is in need of any of those services, you can find her at genderinc.com. And also a content warning. This episode does discuss violence against the LGBTQ community, as well as a brief discussion of child prostitution. Marsha P. Johnson was born on August 24, 1945 in New Jersey. At birth, she was named Malcolm Michaels, which she would change to Marsha when she was an adult. Friends say she didn't speak much about her father, and we know that she was raised primarily by her mother and she was one of several children. Her mother told her that being gay made her lower than a dog, though she didn't kick her out as many other transgender people experienced. That said, as soon as Marsha finished high school, she left home with virtually nothing and moved to New York City in 1963. At the age of five, Marsha began wearing dresses when she could, but she couldn't go out in them. She said the neighbourhood boys would, quote, get fresh with her. After moving to New York, Marsha would dress as a woman. She said she chose the name Marsha over the more obvious feminising of her birth name of Michelle. But that was because that was the name kids would call her to make fun of her when she was growing up and presenting herself as a boy. So she decided on Marsha. The Johnson was after the Howard Johnson's restaurant in Greenwich Village where she lived. As for her middle name, the P didn't stand for what we would normally consider a traditional name. After getting arrested one time, a friend went down to arrange her bail. The judge asked her name. She said Marsha P. Johnson. He then asked what the P stood for and she snapped her finger and said, pay it no mind. And pay it no mind seemed to be Marsha's mantra in life. She would use it when people asked her what her true gender was. She would use it when people harassed her. She was far from a passive person. As we'll see, she fought for the most marginalised groups. She would pay a lot of attention to the things that mattered, but to the things that were trivial or weren't anyone else's business, she would just say, pay it no mind. When Marsha moved to New York, she lived in Greenwich Village, which is an area known to be friendly to the LGBTQ community relative to the rest of the region. That's not to say it was some utopia by any stretch. To set the backdrop of this, 1963 America was openly hostile to the LGBTQ community, and this hostility was backed by the law. 49 of the 50 states had homosexuality outlawed using various language in the wording of the laws. Being gay was viewed as a mental defect. In fact, homosexuality was listed as a mental illness in the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, until 1973, when it was replaced with sexual orientation disturbance, until 1987. Anti-LGBTQ videos were shown to children. Lectures were given to teens and college students about the dangers of homosexuality. And the treatments were horrible. Some would be considered torture today. Being out of the closet was dangerous. Also, dressing in clothing of the opposite gender was also illegal in many areas, including New York City. Police would take people presenting as women to the bathroom to inspect their genitals to confirm their gender. At this time, gender was defined only by external genitalia, 
though that hasn't changed much in some people's minds, even today, things are slowly changing and more and more people are accepting that gender is separate from biological sex, but that's far from universally accepted. Getting arrested was a major issue, even in Greenwich Village, and this is beyond the usual problems associated with an arrest. The names and addresses were published in the paper. People would lose their jobs. Any professional license they held from a hairdresser to a doctor could be revoked. Their families would disown them. So from these torturous treatments to arrest and being forced out of the closet, being LGBTQ in 1963, even in a place like Greenwich Village, was not safe. And what were called homophile organizations in those days, which were groups that supported gay rights, they generally tried the assimilation method. They wanted to show straight society that gay men and lesbian women were just like everyone else. Just everyday people who happened to be gay. This left out a fair number of the community, though. It left out people of color, effeminate men, masculine women, the poor and the homeless, and it very blatantly left out anyone who would be considered gender-variant. Early gay rights demonstrations were organized by people who told women to wear skirts and blouses and told the men to wear shirts and ties. Women in slacks was pushing the envelope too much in some of these groups. A lot of people, even those who did blend into society easily, they flocked to larger cities like New York. Small towns or even decent-sized hometowns limited their options. They had no opportunity to socialise with others in the community and they certainly couldn't risk a relationship. Getting lost as one of those many nameless faces in the big city was a plus. Additionally, large cities would often have an established LGBTQ community where people could live openly within their social group. Greenwich Village was one of those communities. Since the late 1800s, Greenwich Village was the location for alternative culture movements within New York City. The geography doesn't matter much to what we're talking about today, except to mention Christopher Street and the river. Now, Christopher Street runs more or less through the centre of Greenwich Village, east to west from the Hudson River to Sixth Avenue. The Stonewall Inn, which was a mob-run gay bar at the time, it was at about 7th and Christopher. At the end of Christopher Street was the Hudson River, Pier 45, which juts out into the river and is known as the Christopher Street Pier, and this was part of the gay social scene. The area along the Hudson became really run down in the 80s and 90s and was fixed up as part of a larger revitalisation project in the late 1990s. Now, Marsha initially waited tables when she arrived in New York. She would visit her family in New Jersey after moving, but her mother would always insist she dressed as a man. The kids in the family, they loved her because she always brought them candy or trinkets. Even though her identity wasn't fully embraced by her family, she was close to them. Within a few years of living in New York, Marsha was homeless. Homelessness among young gay and trans people was a major issue in Greenwich Village, these are kids at 11, 12 and 13 who were kicked out of their homes for their sexual orientation or gender identity or simply because they were too effeminate and their parents thought that they might be gay. 
and don't think this is a problem of the past. According to the studies cited by the Centre of American Progress, 13 and a half was the average age that transgender youth in New York became homeless in 2010. A broader issue was that there wasn't help for them. Homeless shelters would turn them away, which I think it's important to realise that this is still an issue in 2017. A 2015 survey showed that of nearly 2,000 instances of LGBTQ intimate partner abuse, 44% reported being turned away from shelters. Now, these are abused adults in crisis in the same year that the US Supreme Court made gay marriage legal. So just consider back in the 1960s, when gay marriage wasn't even a debate since homosexuality itself was still illegal. Marsha joined the number of homeless LGBTQ youth and young adults and not-so-young adults and made what money she could through sex work. Marsha was in New York for a short time when she met Sylvia Rivera, who was named Ray Rivera at birth. Marsha was in her late teens. That would make Sylvia about 12 or 13 at the time. Sylvia's father had abandoned the family when she was little, and her mother died when she was three. Sylvia had been thrown out of her home by her grandmother, who was raising her, for being effeminate and trying to wear makeup. She was thrown out of the house at 10 or 11 years old. By the time she met Marsha at 12 or 13, she had been on the streets for at the bare minimum a year, possibly two years. So just think about that for a second. She was an 11-year-old kid on the streets of New York City. She was trying to survive when... Most 11-year-olds are more worried about long division. And while we often think of child prostitution as a human trafficking issue, another form it often takes is what is called survival sex. Survival sex is exactly what it sounds like. Sex to procure the basics needed for survival, whether it's food or shelter. Occasionally, it will be for money to get food or shelter, But very often, it really is just a direct exchange for a meal or a place to stay on a really cold night. We will link to a current study on this issue in the show notes and in the Facebook group. It's sad to say, with a lot of what we're talking about, not that much has changed since the 1960s with this. Which is crazy to me as a mother to an eight-year-old. I mean, Sylvia wasn't much older than him, and to think of him out in the streets doing whatever he could to survive and already being different. Like, I cannot imagine it would have been... She was amazing to survive. Her survival story, which we'll talk about a little bit more, and what she and Marcia did to not just survive but to thrive, it's amazing. But for every Sylvia and Marcia out there, there are so many that aren't making it, which is just so tragic. And I know we'll get into it later, but for what Marsha and Sylvia did to not just survive, but to not also be jaded and selfish, but to put others first is truly incredible. And they connected very quickly after they met. And it's probably because they had that same personality of being givers. And Marsha took on a maternal role with Sylvia in the beginning. Sylvia was a child. She needed a mother figure. As they grew up, on the streets of Greenwich Village together, they developed 
even more this passionate concern for people who were largely overlooked and are still largely overlooked, the homeless gay and trans youth, the people they lived amongst, and particularly those of color. Marcia was Black and Sylvia was Latina. In those early days, Sylvia was the one who was more in your face. She would lead the chants. She would be at the front of the protest. She would organize, whereas Marcia was right there with her, but she was more of the nurturer, and she would sit with the individual who was crying on the sidewalk. She would hand over her only dollar to the person she she knew didn't eat that day. So together, they would cover both the large political purpose, but also reach the individuals. The 1960s was a time of protest in the United States. We're talking about civil rights, women's rights, the sexual revolution and anti-war protests, which took up so much of a decade. Gay rights organisations were also working towards gay rights, though the groups weren't entirely united. A fair portion of this came from the difference of opinion of how to proceed. As you said earlier, Charlie, some people simply wanted to be left alone, but some wanted acceptance into society. Some felt that the best course was to show people that they were the same as everyone else and they would march with the men in suits and ties and the women in skirts and blouses. They were going to fit into society as society was. And there was a good number who wanted to entirely exclude transgender folks. But others felt society should make room for everyone and wanted to be accepted exactly how they were. The different views made it difficult to connect on the larger scale within New York City, even though the community, they surely would have had the numbers they needed. But some of the difficulty getting traction was because people had so much to lose. As you said, Charlie, they could lose their jobs, their businesses, and being arrested and having your name published was a big deal to a lot of those people, particularly those who are trying to blend into society. In the end, it would take those who really had nothing left to lose that would push the movement forward, and Marsha and Sylvia were among those. As gay visibility in Greenwich Village increased, pushback also increased. People would drive to the village to gay bash, and businesses run by openly gay people were vandalised. And it wasn't just citizens who did this. The police who patrolled Greenwich Village, and they were simply brutal with their billy clubs. Hundreds of people a year would be arrested for crimes against nature and thousands of crimes such as loitering and prostitution. And while things like loitering and prostitution were crimes regardless of your sexual orientation or gender identity, these laws would be enforced disproportionately against the LGBTQ community. At this point, we need to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor before we get more into what happened at Stonewall. Blue Apron is doing this great thing in the new year. They're teaming up with Whole30 for eight weeks ending on February 26th, and they will bring you delicious recipes that are Whole30 approved. There will be two Whole30 approved recipes each week, like Mexican Spice Barramundi with avocado and kale and sweet potato salad. So you can kickstart your new year with Blue Apron and Whole30. One of the things I've loved about Whole30 in the past is that it 
teaches me new ways to use and to think about vegetables when creating a meal. Well, that's something I also love that Blue Apron teaches me. Whether you're an experienced chef or an inexperienced chef, Blue Apron has a team of professional chefs putting a lot of care into creating these recipes. And this is taking what I love about Blue Apron, what I love about Whole30, and putting them together. Whole30 approved Togarashi chicken lettuce cups with avocado. I'm really looking forward to that. But I'm also looking forward to the steak Diane with mushroom pan sauce and mashed potatoes, because as much as I love my vegetables, I also love my carbs. Blue Apron is flexible. There are 12 new recipes every week, and you pick two, three, or four recipes based on what fits you best. Blue Apron is treating Insight listeners to their first three meals, $30 value with your first order if you visit blueapron.com slash site. So check out this week's menu, get your $30 off with free shipping at blueapron.com slash site. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. In 1966, the State Liquor Board was forced to drop their overtly anti-gay law against giving liquor licenses to establishments that served any gay people due to some court rulings that had come down. But this didn't change much for many gay bars in reality because bars could lose their liquor license if their bar had incidents of what would be called, quote, disorderly conduct. Two men dancing together? That was disorderly conduct. Any physical affection between two people of the same gender was disorderly conduct. So essentially, establishments could serve someone alcohol even if they were gay, but they had to refuse them if they acted gay. Marsha was a regular at the Stonewall Inn, which was a gay bar on Christopher Street. It was originally men only, but they eventually opened it up to women, including trans women. Unlike other gay bars that were trying to fly under the radar by not allowing this disorderly conduct of dancing and holding hands, the Stonewall allowed that. They allowed dancing. It was really the only public place gay men and women could dance together. The Stonewall was also popular among the more marginalized members of the LGBTQ community, the homeless, drag queens, butch lesbians, effeminate gay men, because they would be turned away at other gay bars. But having this place came with a price. It was a dive. Illnesses were spread when the glasses weren't washed properly because they didn't have running water behind the bar, so they would just dip the glasses and pans of still water to clean them and then immediately reuse them. The bathrooms were in terrible condition. They were dirty. They had bad plumbing. Patrons who had any means at all would be blackmailed by the bar owners because these bar owners, as Ellie said, it was the mob. The mafia owned the bar. The mafia owned a lot of the gay bars. And they paid the police to keep running. The police still raided the bar pretty much monthly, but they would generally do it in the early evening on a weekday, so few people were caught up in it. Usually the bar would even be tipped off that the raid was coming. That's what this bribe was for. And the process of a raid was practically routine at this point. Everyone's IDs would be checked, a few arrests would be made, and the liquor would be confiscated. Those dressed in drag or suspected of being in drag would be taken to the bathroom and had their genitals checked. 
It would generally take just a few officers to conduct these raids. The patrons and the bar management knew the drill and resisting was uncommon. And you keep on mentioning the part where the people are taken into the bathroom to have their genitals checked. Just imagine if that happened today, the uproar that would cause. The fact that this was all happening not that long ago, it's crazy to me. It's absolutely humiliating for someone to be forced to show their private body parts just because someone suspects they're wearing the wrong clothes. It's actually proposed in the bathroom legislation here in the United States where they're trying to ban trans people from using the bathroom of their gender identity. The only way we can know that people are following that law is if we do check and people who are pro bathroom bills, which obviously I am not one of them, they do think the police or authorities should have a right to check someone's genitals if they do not believe they are dressed as the quote-unquote right gender. That's ridiculous. To me, that is a breach of human rights. You can't treat people like that. I agree completely. But at the Stonewall Inn on Friday nights, it'd be very busy and crowded. On June 27, 1969, we're talking about your typical Friday night. After being open and busy for several hours, at 1.20 in the morning on June 28, six police officers entered the bar and announced that they were taking the place. And this came as a surprise to everyone, including the bar management. The bar had just been raided that week on a Tuesday, as was the typical weeknight type raid. Also, no tip came in letting them know that this was going to happen. Being raided twice in one week, being raided on the weekend and not getting a tip really took everyone by surprise. Now, there are a few theories as to why this happened. There was a rumour that this raid wasn't at the direction of the city, but rather a federal agency, being the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. And this was because of bootleg liquor. Another theory is that whomever it was in the police force taking the bribe from the Stonewall they didn't believe they were getting enough. The mob was blackmailing patrons, as Charlie said, and they were taking in a lot of money this way. Perhaps those being bribed wanted a larger cut. There were about 200 patrons inside the bar, and what exactly sparked the Stonewall riots, or rather the Stonewall uprising, as it probably should be called, it's unclear. There is a story involving Marsha P. Johnson saying that she threw a shot glass into a bar mirror and they called it the shot glass heard around the world. Though in interviews, Marsha said she didn't get to the bar until after the raid and she wasn't inside the bar at all that night. She was across the street at Christopher Park having a drink when she saw the uprising already underway and she headed over. It really began with small acts of resistance. Some of the trans women refused to go into the bathroom with the female officers. Some men started refusing to show their IDs. While this was happening inside, a crowd was gathering outside. These small acts of resistance made their way out onto the street. And there's a story of a woman described as a butch lesbian resisting arrest right in front of the stone wall as the crowd watched. She broke free a few times, and at one point in the struggle with police, 
She yelled to the crowd something to the effect of, why aren't you doing anything? And some witnesses identify this woman as Stormy de Lavier, who was a well-known drag king. When she was lifted by officers and they tried to force her into the paddy wagon, the crowd decided they were going to do something, and the uprising went from people resisting arrest to a whole crowd ready to fight back. So people have tried through witness accounts to find the moment that this change happened and the immediate cause of it, and a lot of people look at this as being that moment, but this moment was building both within the community over years, but also that night. Women being frisked that night, they were reporting that they were being touched inappropriately during this. People who were leaving the Stonewall, either as they were being arrested or as they were just being escorted out, the police would kick them and push them. Those who resisted arrest in the slightest got it even worse than that. This wasn't an orderly evening of the police trying to do their job and the crowd turning violent. This was a crowd being subjected to continued violence, and they decided they weren't going to go quietly this time. This was a crowd that had nowhere else to go. The Stonewall was all they had. Many didn't have families to lose anymore. They had already been disowned. Many didn't have homes to lose or jobs to lose. They already lost those. Many already had arrest records, so their names being published, that didn't matter much. When people live in a state of crisis like homeless youth do, where survival is everything, they don't necessarily think of the past or the future. They think of the moment, and they had lost so much because people couldn't accept and love them for who they were. And right there in that moment, they were losing the only thing that distracted them from their daily struggles, the Stonewall Inn. They decided this time they were going to fight for it. The police didn't back down, but the more they pushed, the more the crowd pushed back. The crowd outside grew larger than the number of people who were arrested. The crowd eventually pushed the police back into the Stonewall, They were essentially trapped with some patrons. Trash was lit on fire. Beer bottles were thrown. The police in the building worried that they were going to be killed. And eventually the tactical response team arrived. Hours later, some arrests were made, including some violent arrests. There were attempted arrests. There were fights. And the crowd mostly scattered. And it was over at 4 a.m. Until the Stonewall opened the next night, the uprising started up again, only this time they were joined by others and thousands were in Greenwich Village. Marsha was there and was seen climbing a lamppost so she could drop something on a police car, breaking the windshield. The police response was also larger, though it continued again the way it had the night before, though many report a lot of the rioters were jubilant. They were showing public affection, they were starting kick lines, and they were chanting and singing. They were claiming their right to exist publicly. But the violence was also worse, and there were more injuries on both sides. There is some debate over Sylvia Riviera's presence at Stonewall. She says she was there inside the bar when it was raided. Some people say they didn't see her there at all that night. Maybe she wasn't in the bar, but outside like Marsha. Or maybe she wasn't there at all that first night. 
but she would have absolutely been there the second night and possibly the next couple of days as well. A little interesting information that Debbie Jackson provided that's has to do with Stonewall, but is a little off what we're talking about. It's about one of the people arrested at Stonewall. Miss Major Griffin Gracie is a trans woman and an activist who's carrying a very large legacy. She was the only trans woman who was active that night at Stonewall and in the movement afterwards, who was still alive and still actively working. At 77 years old, she has had a remarkably long life for a trans woman of color. Due to the harsh realities that face many trans women of color, homelessness, survival sex work, violence against them, often by their intimate partners, and a lack of consistent access to health care, the average life expectancy of a trans woman of color today, not 1960s, today, is 29 to 35 years. Back to the Stonewall then. These were the two biggest nights of the Stonewall Uprising, but it wasn't the end. For the next several days, about a week, there would be smaller instances of skirmishes on Christopher Street. Not everyone in the community saw these events initially as a positive. Those who were trying to advocate for gay rights by saying, hey, look, we're the same as everyone else, they now had to contend with this depiction of the community as radical at best, violent at worst. But those who saw this as the start of a movement rather than just a moment jumped on it. They began producing leaflets exposing the mafia and police corruption in the oversight of gay bars. And those who had previously felt they had to, quote, act straight, even while protesting for gay rights, felt free to express themselves and even hold hands with their partners, whereas they never would have before. It was a time of change and a very sudden change with how the community advocated for itself. A year later, on June 28, 1970, a march was organized to recognize the events of Stonewall. It started in front of the Stonewall Inn, and it was planned to end at Central Park, except they made no plans for how they would end at Central Park. Usually, marches to a location like a park end with a rally, but they didn't plan a rally because while Central Park was their goal, they didn't think they would make it. They assumed that violent resistance or arrests would end the parade early. One person who participated said it wasn't even so much a march as it was a run because they walked so quickly. They were so worried. There were about a 100 or so people marching They were genuinely afraid that they were going to be attacked. The streets were lined with people watching, but as the parade marched quickly by, the spectators started jumping in to join them from behind. So they started the march with about 125 people who were afraid, and they ended in Central Park with an estimated 2,000 people. Martha and Sylvia also used Stonewall as momentum to move forward their own activism. In 1970, Martha and Sylvia were really concerned about the homeless LGBTQ in Greenwich Village and the exclusion of trans people in the larger movement towards gay rights. Together they began The Star, which is street transvestite action revolutionaries. Sylvia continued to look to Marsha like a parental figure, as others did. 
She was warm and caring and always concerned about if everyone else had enough. Enough to eat, somewhere to sleep, appropriate clothing. Marcia would take people to the thrift store to show them how they could put together outfits without much money. She would attend to their needs. But Marcia wasn't what you would consider a linear thinker. She was fighting some other battles in her own head that we'll talk about later. But Sylvia, Sylvia was a planner. She was a big picture thinker and she would see how to get from point A to point B. So while Sylvia looked at Marcia to be the president of Star the way a child would defer to a parent, Marcia considered herself Sylvia's vice president. She was there to support Sylvia and do what was needed to be done, but she followed Sylvia's broader plan. They eventually grew to both be mothers with their work towards their ultimate goal. They rented a place where they could run a homeless shelter for trans youth. They engaged in sex work on the streets to pay for this place and to feed the kids they took in so that the kids wouldn't have to turn to the streets to support themselves. This was an incredible sacrifice on their part to save these youths. But there are some stories of smaller sacrifices too, particularly of Marsha. One time, Marsha used her last couple of dollars to buy a pack of cookies. She and a friend were going to walk down to the pier to hang out and eat. But by the time they got from the store to the pier, there were no cookies left. Marsha had handed them out to the homeless people they passed on the way. Marsha never had extra anything because she gave it away. If someone complimented her on her jewellery or her scarf, she would simply give it to them. She would ask people for money, but then she'd give that away to someone else who needed it more. And there are big stories out there. In the 1980s, the AIDS crisis hit the US. While disease specialists understood how it was transmitted, there was a lack of education in the community. People were afraid AIDS could be spread through normal contact, much like a cold or the flu was transmitted. Even in this, Marsha didn't care. She would sit with those who were diagnosed. She'd feed them. In one case, she nursed a man dying of AIDS-related complications day in and day out, and she was there with him when he died. Star didn't always have the funds to have a home for the kids, but if Star didn't have a home, well, neither did Sylvia or Marsha. They paid for Star instead of paying for their own place, and even without a roof themselves, they still ran Star as an advocacy organisation. A turning point came in 1973. The Gay Pride Committee did not want the drag queens marching. They felt they were giving the rest of the community a bad name. And Sylvia and Marsha had a solution to this. They marched down the street ahead of the parade. So instead of being less visible, as some had wished, they had made themselves more visible. In the years since Stonewall, it was becoming more obvious that the trans community was being excluded from the movement. Sylvia felt the most vulnerable in the community were being ignored. And Sylvia herself had been pretty much uninvited to speak at the Gay Liberation Rally in 1973, but she took the stage anyway. And by take the stage, I mean she kind of charged the stage. And while on the stage in front of the crowd, she described being arrested and attacked because of her activism to a mixed reaction of cheers and boos from the crowd. 
She accused the group of focusing on white middle-class men and women and leaving out everyone else. And, like many things, this is also still an issue. It seems that some LGBTQ groups want to leave off the T and the Q entirely. Some want them to just wait for their turn, thinking it's better to get some rights first rather than just hold out for everything at once. But this was too much for Sylvia. She started on the streets at 11, and now she was 22. She had gathered very few resources for herself in those 11 years because she gave everything to others and to Star and to the cause. And this cause was now actively trying to push her out of it. So Sylvia went home, she locked the door, and she attempted suicide. Marcia got into her room and saved her life, but Sylvia then left New York City. She left the gay rights movement for the next 20 years. Marcia remained in New York City even after Sylvia left. They continued to be friends, of course, but Marcia was carrying on with their work. She continued to march, protest, and reach out to the community. She stood outside Bellevue Hospital to protest the gay conversion and quote-unquote cures that were going on inside. She was also gaining visibility. While always a popular fixture in Greenwich Village, she became known throughout New York and beyond in the 70s and 80s. She was a pioneer in the sense that she was never trying to fit in anywhere. She was Marsha. She had that huge smile and flowers in her hair. She was photographed by Andy Warhol for his 1975 series, Ladies and Gentlemen. She was a member of the drag group called Hot Peaches, and she toured with them. The performances included singing, which wasn't something Marsha was good at. But instead of holding her back, her stilted and off-key performances became her thing, and audience loved her for it. Even with this, Marsha was still homeless off and on. One night in the late 70s or early 80s, a friend of hers was concerned because Marsha was going to be sleeping outside during what was an extreme cold snap in New York. This friend was living in nearby Hoboken with a man named Randy Wicker. Randy was, and still is, a gay rights activist and had taken in this young man as sort of an adopted son. He asked Randy to please let Marsha spend the night. It was too cold to sleep outside, and she'd be happy just to have somewhere to sleep, even if it was just on the floor. Randy somewhat reluctantly said yes. Marsha then lived with Randy for the next 12 years. They become incredibly close friends. Now, Randy has done some incredible work documenting first-hand accounts of gay right activists, and you can find a lot of these interviews that he has done on his YouTube channel, we will link to this in our show notes and on our Facebook page. Marcia struggled through her adult life with her mental health. She said her first mental breakdown was in 1970. She would periodically be picked up by police and sent either to the hospital at Bellevue or she would go home to her mother's house while she recovered. One time she was stopped by police officers and she hit them with a purse that had a brick in it. And she told the judge that she was prostituting herself to pay for a tombstone for her husband who was killed by police. And after that, she was sent to Bellevue. Another time, she was picked up practically naked, roaming around lost. I saw one interview where the person said she would be given Thorazine, which is an antipsychotic, 
during these hospital stays. She'd return to Christopher Street, she'd be a bit out of it, but would be back to her old self in a few days, which leads me to think that she wasn't taking the medication regularly after she would get out of the hospital. In 1987, she had a major incident at Randy's apartment complex. From what I gather, Randy was out of town and Marcia was having a delusion that there were evil spirits in the apartment and she must have trashed the apartment because Randy wrote that it took hours to clean up everything and that some glassware was destroyed. So while what I read didn't come out and say she trashed the apartment, something happened. Anyway, a friend got Marcia's key away from her while Randy was still gone and Marcia was roaming between Hoboken and Manhattan. The security guards at the apartment complex were told Marcia could not be allowed back up to the apartment. But at some point, she got past the guards and realized she couldn't get into the apartment, so she pulled the fire alarm. And when authorities responded, she told them that God told her to pull the alarm. After a few weeks in the hospital after this incident, she was back to her usual self, But the apartment complex management, they weren't going to let her back in. Randy eventually forgave her for what happened. I think in what I've read from Randy and heard him say, he understood the complex nature of Marcia and her mind and her mental health. So now she was out of the hospital, but she was homeless because the apartment complex wouldn't let her back in. Randy eventually convinced the building super that That she was better, and they did let her move back in. Randy had to do kind of a little song and dance about Marcia being his maid, and what a burden it was on him to have to do without a maid. Those terms are what the building super would understand. There were no more big incidents like this, though Randy has said that Marcia was struggling and that she was rather fragile in the early 1990s. So let's walk through the week leading up to Marsha's death in 1992. On June 26, 1992, Marsha gave a film interview about her life and her activism. You can watch this on YouTube. The documentary is called Pay It No Mind, and I definitely recommend it. I think you may want to also look for other interviews Marsha has given on YouTube. Marsha, to me, she seems a little more out of it in this interview. She was always a quirky person, but this interview stands out as different from the other interviews to me, and I wonder if this is what Randy meant by her seeming more fragile. On June 29th, she was seen at the Gay Pride Parade. Randy said he saw her on July 2nd, and she didn't come home after that. I imagine as being a grown person, she came and she went as she wanted, and it doesn't sound like he was immediately alarmed. A witness says she saw Marsha on the 4th of July. They said they would meet up with her much later that night. After midnight, though, Marsha had never showed. Later, a witness would report having seen Marsha at 4am on July 5th, heading towards the Christopher Street Pier, and Marsha appeared scared or agitated. On July 6th at 5.23pm, Marsha's body was seen in the Hudson River, close to the Hudson River waterfront. She was 47 years old. Without much investigation beyond an autopsy done the following day, the cause of death was ruled drowning, and the manner of death was suicide. Marsha's body was cremated and marched from the church to the piers, 
where her ashes were scattered in the Hudson River near where she was found. A makeshift memorial of bottles and flowers had popped up in the spot where her body laid when it was pulled out of the water. In footage of the walk to the pier with her ashes, you can see Randy and Sylvia at the front of the crowd, and the grief on their face is jarring, and it's absolutely heartbreaking. None of Masha's friends believed it was suicide. A lot of what you'll hear is that she wasn't suicidal and no one could imagine her being suicidal. The truth is, as we've spoken about today, she was struggling with mental health, though she didn't have any suicidal idolation or suicide attempts. She had saved Sylvia after a suicide attempt, and they made a pact that neither of them would go to the other side. Cross the River Jordan is how Sylvia put it, without the other one. Early on, those who were there when Marcia was pulled out of the river noticed what looked like a head injury. Now, this fueled the theory that she was beaten and thrown into the river. However, later, an independent medical examiner reviewed the autopsy, including the photographs of Marsha's body. And what this showed was that what looked like a head wound was actually normal for a body that had been in the water for as long as Marsha's body was. There was nothing on the autopsy that would indicate that she had been beaten. But that still doesn't mean it was suicide. After a lot of protest over the years, the manner of death was changed in 2002 from suicide to undetermined when authorities admitted there wasn't enough evidence that this was a suicide. If it wasn't a suicide, it still leaves open the question what it was. The authorities just determined that it was undetermined. Years before her death, Marcia had an incident on the pier where she was being harassed and she was thrown into the Hudson River. She had managed to get out, though nobody really knows how. The water is low enough that you can't just reach up and grab the edge of the pier to pull yourself out, and the sides of the piers that go into the water are concrete, so it isn't as though there were boards or stones that you grab onto to climb out. I don't know if this is the case, but, I mean, would there be ladders at certain points in the pit where you could climb out? Not saying that she was anywhere near those, but... Right. My assumption is there has to be some way to get in and out. It's difficult to know now because they did that revitalization project in the 1990s. And so the piers don't look like they did then. But I have to assume there had to have been something she got to that she was able to get out. But we don't know how hard it was for her to get there. This had happened years previous. At this point, she's in her 40s. She's not in her 20s anymore. So it may have been more difficult for her to get to whatever it was that got her out the time before. And I mean, this other time, I mean, maybe someone was there to pull her out. This was the 4th of July weekend. It's possible she had been drinking. It was night and she was disoriented. I mean, there could have been a lot of extra factors that we just don't know. But knowing that she was able to get out of the water once... I do think it's possible that she may have actually jumped into the river herself trying to get away from people who were harassing her, but she just couldn't get out for whatever reason. Or maybe she was even thrown in. Randy had tried to find witnesses who saw something between the gay pride parade and when Marsha's body was found. And one man said he saw her being harassed at the pier over the 4th of July weekend. And when he left the pier, he didn't see her again. He wasn't watching. So he saw her and these men. He looked away. And when he looked back, 
she wasn't there. Exactly. For all he knew, she could have just walked away. Right. She could have walked away. This could have been, she could have jumped in or been thrown in. He doesn't know, but. He doesn't know. You know, it also supports the other witness who said that they saw her being followed. Randy has said that he wondered if she had a hallucination or an accident that led her to go into the water. As you said, Charlie, the pier was in terrible shape. So an accident, you can't rule it out. But Randy, like most people, leaned toward this being murder. It could have been someone who intentionally threw her in, or it could have been someone who harassed and scared her enough that she felt that the river was her best option to survive. In 2012, the case was reopened, and this time it was being investigated as a possible homicide. And in 2017, a documentary called The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson was released on Netflix. And this documentary follows an employee of the New York Anti-Violence Project investigating Marsha's death. A theory was put forward in this documentary that Marsha's death may have been mob-related. Marsha was a fixture in the gay community, and she was a protester, but she also avoided fights if she could. If a business wouldn't serve her, and it was something she could get elsewhere, she would just go elsewhere. And she said outright in an interview that she didn't want to mess with the mob. She expressed to people that she was worried about the mafia because of Randy's political activism. At the end of the gay pride parade in New York City is this massive street fair. And this fair is a for-profit venture. And sometimes when money becomes involved, things can become corrupt or people are concerned. It's becoming corrupt. And Randy was concerned He felt there may be some shady dealings with the people who were running the fair. And these people possibly had mafia ties. And Randy, as I have learned while researching this story, isn't quiet about things when he has concerns or he has accusations. He was, I think, actually the first person to go on TV as a gay man without obscuring his identity in any way. I mean, he is just right there and not quiet. The organizers of the fair denied that they had mafia ties, that they were using this money inappropriately. They said all the profits went back into the community. But Randy was very vocal about his concerns. So to back up this theory, there was an anonymous call to the Anti-Violence Project in New York. According to the records, they received this call on July 28th, about three weeks after Marsha was found. Randy does not remember being told about this call, but the call said that if Randy did not leave the fair organizers alone, and it named them, that the same thing that happened to Marsha would happen to him. And then there's another rumor that was going around that Marsha got into a car with four Italian-American men though that's not been substantiated. It was just someone saying that they had heard the rumor. But when you're talking about Italian-Americans and you're talking about the mafia, these theories kind of blend together. Though Marcia's case does remain unsolved. Personally, I'm not sold on the whole suicide thing. Look, I know there's a high rate of suicide among the LGBTQ community, but it sounds like Marsha spent a lot of time around really supportive people like Randy. I think, or I would hope, that she would have reached out for help. I think what possibly what Randy thought could be partially true 
I think that maybe she was having an hallucination or some sort of paranoid episode. Maybe it was the alcohol mixed in with uh, a mental condition or her medication if she was taking that. Maybe she thought she was being followed or she was in danger. Maybe, as you said, Charlie, she thought since she got into the river once and got out, she could do it again. It was the 4th of July and maybe she was yelling out for someone to help her and no one could hear her and she couldn't get back out on this occasion. I think the lack of physical marks on her, it makes me feel it's less likely that it was a... Nobody beat her up and threw her in the river, which is what I would think a gay basher or the mafia would have done. But I really can't discount that she was being harassed to where she had no escape. She was in fear of her life and jumped in, which would still be murder because if not for those actions, she wouldn't have ever ended up in the river. I think that it was written off as a suicide so quickly was just inappropriate ruling on the part of the police. I admire the community who knew Marsha for immediately taking to the streets and trying to get this looked at again. I won't discount the possibility that she had a hallucination or there was some accident at the pier, but I feel like there was there's something to that. The witnesses seeing her being harassed by the pier. And with everything we've said today with what was going on in the community, that would make sense. It would make sense that she was being harassed for the person that she was. And she was a well-known person, so they would have known what they were doing. And the fact that the police wrote it off so quickly as a suicide also fits in to what was going on at that time in New York. It was just the easier option. They thought no one would question it. Sylvia eventually moved back to New York City after Marsha died. She was drinking very heavily and she lived amongst the homeless encampments near the Hudson River. Even there, she was helping people. Not willing to find shelter for the winter if that meant leaving the others living around her behind. She was eventually kicked out when the city came through and began that revitalisation work in the area. A former star kid who Marsha and Sylvia had taken in years ago named Chelsea had a house much like the Star House. She and her partner slowly started taking in homeless trans youth and called their home Transy House. When Chelsea found out that Sylvia was homeless, she invited her to live at the house, telling her that as long as she had a home, that Sylvia had a home too. Sylvia did work around the house and yard to earn her keep. She fell in love with a woman living at the house and got sober. It is said that she went cold turkey. She began volunteering with a metropolitan community church in New York City. And if you remember way back in our Upstairs Lounge arson episode, this is the same denomination as the members of that tragedy. She was eventually hired as a director of their food bank. Sylvia found her voice even louder in her sobriety, but the years of alcohol abuse caught up and Sylvia died in 2002 of liver cancer. Even while in the hospital at the end of her life, hooked up to tubes and machines and in the incredible pain that is end stages cancer, she was having meetings in her hospital bed imploring other activists and other members and other groups to not forget the homeless and to not forget the gender non-conforming members of the community. 
She begged the pastor of the MCC church she worked for to keep her work going. Hours, literally hours, before she died, she was still advocating for the community. And the MCC church did keep her work going. They renamed their food pantry, the Sylvia Rivera Food Pantry. They opened a short-term homeless shelter for LGBTQ youth called Sylvia's Place. Randy Wicker has worked to preserve the memories of Marsha and Sylvia on video by sharing archival footage that he's collected, as well as interviewing those who knew them. In 2000, the Stonewall Inn became the first National Historic landmark for the importance in LGBTQ history, and it was established one of the newest national parks, Stonewall National Monument, by President Obama on June 24, 2016. To express the impact Marsha, Sylvia, and Stonewall has had on the lives of members of the LGBTQ community who never even met them, I've asked some friends of ours to go ahead and share their thoughts. Hi, my name is Amanda, and I identify as a lesbian. I just wanted to say a couple words about Marsha P. Johnson. First and foremost, I just wanted to point out how absolutely beautiful she was. She helped shape the LGBTQ plus community in a lot of ways that are still around today. She just gives us all hope that one day things can change and that we should all be the change that we want to see. Hi. I'm Eileen from Misconduct, a true crime podcast. I came out about 10 years ago, but when I was a teenager, I knew I was attracted to women. I just, you know, didn't admit it to myself. Many factors played in, such as family and religious upbringing. But what didn't play a part, or much of one, was, you know, how society would treat me. And no, it wasn't as accepted as it is today. I mean, we're talking 20 years ago when I was in high school. But it wasn't like it was 40, 50, or hell, even 30 years ago. Those days, a gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender person must have been so lonely and so terrified once they realized they were, you know, quote-unquote different. So many were ostracized, fired from their jobs, beaten, arrested, and even killed for being, you know, queer. And it was accepted by, quote-unquote, normal society for those horrible things to happen queer people hid in shadows, had to go to underground clubs, and risk arrest if raided. You know, the clubs would get raided. At worst, at best, deal with law enforcement abusing them on a regular basis, Why they were just trying to enjoy a good time at a bar, trying to have a drink, talk to like-minded people, or just trying to love who they wanted to love. So, you know, I don't know, people know, but cops would actually come and do like stings. They would solicit, they would go to these underground clubs and solicit sex, pretend to be gay, and once I don't know, however far it got where they could arrest them, they would arrest them, usually after a good ass kicking. And just unthinkable consequences for just being yourself and insane law enforcement stings dedicated to, you know, weeding out queers, so to speak. It was just, you know, utter insanity if you think about it. Not sure if a lot of people know, but the reason why we have Gay Pride Month and a Gay Pride Parade is because we're celebrating the Stonewall Riots. What these people endured and what they did when they stood up and said no more during the Stonewall Uprising was amazing. It took so much courage to stand up to the police and the government and say no more, no more abuse, no more treating us like second-class citizens, and they kicked off the LGBT civil rights movement. 
they had to out themselves. They had to step out into the light. And I mean, literally putting themselves in danger and potentially losing everything, ruining their lives and even possibly losing their lives. I honestly don't know if I could do what Marsha Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, and all those who were involved in Stonewall and who started groups like Star and the Gay Liberation Front. I don't know if I could do what they did. I would like to think I could, but I honestly don't know. I was watching an episode of Will and Grace, uh, the Will and Grace reboot, and I swear I have a point to this. And Will goes on a date with a young guy. The kid is like, I say kid, he's 23. So the kid asks at some point, you know, what this piece of art was or what something was. I forget what it was. And Will was like, oh, that was, you know, from Stonewall or represents Stonewall. And the kid goes, what is that, a nap or something? Or, you know, makes some kind of silly sitcom joke, but basically had no clue what Stonewall was. So they start talking about all these amazing people and organizations that fought for gay rights. Well, Will did the talking. And the kid was on his phone and just kind of not interested. When Will asked him how it went when he came out, the kid was like, oh, my parents threw me a coming out party. This took Will on a whole nother rant about how his mother cried and disowned him. And now they went on to make a joke about, you know, Will's reaction. But on the other hand, I found it quite poignant, really, Because while it's awesome that so many people's experiences on coming out are positive these days, and believe me, I know not all or even most are positive, don't get me wrong, but I believe a lot more people these days do have an easier time coming out. People are coming out, you know, earlier, like in high school or even younger. We're seeing, you know, LGBT represented in media and not just where the lesbian dies at the end. We're seeing more trans inclusion and visibility we're seeing way more ways to express your sexuality and your gender and all that. And I, it's all because the people who fought so hard for our rights, and I just don't think we should forget that. The Marshes, the Sylvias, the Harveys, those at Stonewall who stood up and said, you know, not today and never again. Those that literally gave up their lives that made it easier for me to come out and made it so I can walk down the street with my wife and hold her hand so I can marry her legally so she can be my person if I'm in the hospital, or vice versa. I guess I'm just very impressed and grateful. I really don't think words can express how I feel about these trailblazers that ignited the gay liberation movement. But if it wasn't for them, I don't know where I would be today. Everyone who's known me for longer than I've been out will say how different I am, how more sure of myself I am, how comfortable I am in my own skin after I came out. And honestly, who knows where I would be if I never did come out. And one of the reasons why I could was because these amazing, brave, beautiful people who put everything on the line for the future of the LGBT community, which includes me. So all I can really think of to say is thank you. And, you know, thank you, Charlie and Allie, for doing such an amazing episode on this as well. One thing that I always think about when I think about um, Stonewall and the LGBT activists that came before me is how unaware I am of their work. I live a pretty open life. Um, I am a woman in a relationship with a woman and we walk down the street and we hold hands and aside from the few odd protesters outside of every rock concert and the few dirty looks we I mean, we're pretty normal as far as that goes. And without the activists that came before us, um, such as Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Riviera, we 
wouldn't be able to do that. And I was talking to a young woman, she was 17, uh, at uh, Walgreens, and I offhandedly said something about my wife without thinking about it. And she just was over the moon about how I was married to a girl and where did we get married and You know, it really meant something because she saw me as this, like, activist coming before her, and all I did was get married and had no trouble with it. Our families are really accepting of us, and, you know, so I have to wonder what her coming out process was, and I was able to be that nonchalant about my own marriage because of the people that came before me, and because of those people, I was able to be someone for this young girl. And I think that is so amazing. And that is what I think about how those people fought tooth and nail for me to be able to essentially forget what happened and casually mention my relationship, which turned around and made this whole girl's day. Um, because, uh, as she told me, she was telling me a lot, uh, you know, she'd just come out and it was kind of a struggle and, you know, it gave her real hope that she'd, you know, have a future with her girlfriend that she just got. And so that's, that's what that means to me. Hello everyone. My name is JV, AKA Mixter Hyde. I am the host of In the Mix with Mixter Hyde, an interview show, Criminal Musings, which is a true crime podcast and Red Wing, the audio drama podcast, which is, as you probably guessed, an audio drama in podcast form. So I was asked to talk a little bit about Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, and also and also talk about Stonewall, and what those things mean to the queer community now, all the way in, well, I guess now, as you're listening to this, it is 2018. And in order to sort of unpack that and what they mean, there are a couple things that I think we need to understand about the gay community and what the process of fighting for equality has sort of done. One of the ways in which that in which fighting for equality has impacted the gay community is that a lot of our stories wind up somehow being lost. I think also a lot of that has to do with the fact that the public education system is not exactly about to go around teaching these things. I did not actually learn a whole lot about Stonewall until I was 21, 22, around then. And that is in no small part due to... Well, it's due to a bunch of factors, but one of the main factors is the fact that oftentimes... Uh, gay history, queer history, LGBT history, whatever words you would like to use, that is not somehow seen as American history, even though it is. So we don't teach this to people when we should, which is, you know, when we're learning the rest of American history, when we're learning about the rest of the time periods in which these things happen, or rather have happened, that's those are all things we should be talking about. I will say I think we've gotten a little bit better in terms of teaching these things. Um and I think that the media is doing a much better job of teaching these things. Like for example, there have been a lot a lot of films and a lot of um documentaries about Stonewall that have come out really recently. Like I think literally it's been three in the last three years. 
like that all had Marsha P. Johnson in them. One of the other reasons that I really, really appreciate Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera is that they were actually fighting not just for equality, but they were fighting for something different. Something that I think we are realizing now in the gay community that we really, that we almost need to fight for again, um, in a slightly different way, which is, which is fighting not for acceptance. Like, acceptance in this particular case just sort of mean, honestly, oftentimes winds up meaning integrating and in the integration process, becoming like the very thing that we weren't in the first place and sort of making ourselves seem presentable and look a certain way so that we wind up being accepted. Like that, that's oftentimes what winds up having to happen. I don't personally think that that is right at all. Um, there is actually a turning point in my life specifically. It was in 2012, um, right when I was graduating college that I, instead of, instead of fighting to be accepted by the people that I was around, what I would do is I would give myself permission and freedom to be myself. And that is what, to me, they represent, which is the fight to be who you are as an individual, as a community, to be who you are, not to be accepted necessarily, though that also ties into that freedom. The freedom to be who you are and also the respect from other people to respect you as a human being, those are what they represent to me. Like, we are so far from done with any of the work that they started. I occasionally get a little discouraged when I realize how far, um, like, how far we still have to go, especially actually throughout all of, well, I guess pretty much every year. This happened, this has been happening since before we had media that mentioned it to us, but the deaths of trans women of color and how high that has gotten in the past few years is really tragic. And that is something that we need to fix. That is something we need to work on and solve. And that is the fight that they represent to me. And as a quasi-activist, I'm not super activist-y, but I'm activist-y enough. I aim to continue that work in some way, shape, or form. Even if the way that I wind up doing that is simply living a life that is true to who I actually am and not just who I am attempting to present to other people. I want to thank Insight for putting this episode together. I know I personally really do appreciate it, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners also appreciate you. Thank you so much, and keep on trucking. And also, to all of your listeners, stay safe out there. <laughs>